Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the purpose of cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have new stories, including the Haval H9 SUV, Can It Make It Here?, and a hydrogen electric ute. We put a call into the UK to speak to Jaguar Land Rover's head of future mobility, Dr. Tim Leverton, about where Jaguar is going in the future. And Brian Smith and I have some quirky news. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. Dr. Tim Leverton has specialised in product development at the highest level in his 40 years in the car industry. He heads Jaguar Land Rover's Future Mobility Research Project. Their first concept vehicle is electric, has side doors like a train carriage and seats that can be arranged to suit various functions. Why? What we can see is that in the future, it's not only the design of the vehicle which will, will help in the way that we can great zero emission vehicles for example but how those vehicles integrate into a a completely integrated mobility system for a city our aim has got to be to reduce the number of vehicles and this can only be achieved by sharing vehicles and by by getting higher occupancy in those vehicles great wall motors the chinese company that makes great wall haval and several other brands is said to be the biggest ute and suv manufacturer in china The Haval H9 is their large SUV, plain on the outside with a moderate-sized 2.0-litre turbocharged petrol engine, but its big strength is the features on the inside. The the top-of-the-range Ultra has heated, ventilated and massaging front seats. There's a huge rain-sensing panoramic sunroof, a 10-speaker Infinity sound system, heated steering wheel and comfort tech seating, but no sat-nav. It has six driving modes, auto, sand, snow, mud, low range and sport. The base model is $42,000 and the upmarket Ultra is $46,000 and that's drive away prices. Competent off-road and value for money without paying for a brand name. Citroen models have become more mainstream than the heady days of the 50s and 60s. They made some unique cars in their outward design and their mechanical attributes, the pinnacle of which was the never-copied DS range. The new Citroen C5 Aircross is a medium-sized SUV. There are a few outward features that give it character, but the digital dash is, to my mind, the thing that speaks of clever design. Digital graphics are often dominated by colour and movement. The more, the better. But safety is based on simplicity and clarity. In the C5, you can choose five different dash layouts and the centre screen shows controls that are just plain usable. The C5 is priced from $40,000 to $44,000 plus on-road costs. It has been said that only a ute powered by petrol or diesel can serve the great Australian outdoors. 
But the Nikola Motor Company has other ideas. They've just announced their ute, the Badger. It's a hybrid vehicle in the sense that it drives its four electric motors, one for each wheel, off both battery and hydrogen fuel cell technology. Not directly using fossil fuels is not a problem. They claim it will have peak power of 675 kilowatts and peak torque of 1,329 newton metres and a range of 965 kilometres, half from battery, half from the hydrogen fuel cell and will accelerate from 0 to 100 kilometres an hour in just 2.9 seconds. It's due out in America in September, but no price has been mentioned. With the demise of Holden, we have been collecting stories from people who have fond memories from the past, including some mishaps along the way. I know Alan Finlay as a well-presented and respected professional traffic engineer. I didn't realise, though, that his adventurous background went to racing an E.H. Holden. I was competing at a hill climb at Amaru Park, and as I uh, revved the car to its limit in first gear, I heard an almighty bang, and I thought the worst. I thought I'd blown the motor. But as it turned out, the bang was created by one of the fan blades coming off. The fan blade was actually sticking out through the bonnet, and thankfully, the rest of the uh, the motor and the car was all right. One quick-witted colleague lamented how much he missed the time when a heavy metal fan was only referring to a motoring component. And that has been the news. Dr. Tim Leverton is the leader of Project Vector, Jagger Land Rover's future mobility research project. The project focuses on developing solutions for urban mobility, including product, digital and autonomous technology. In a career spanning 40 years in the world automotive industry, Dr. Leverton has specialised in product development at the highest level. He joined Tata Motors, the parent company of Jaguar Land Rover, in 2010 as president and head of Advanced and Product Engineering Division. In this role, which he held till 2017, he was responsible for leading the global R&D of all Tata-branded passenger cars, trucks and buses. It's a pleasure to talk to him from his office in the UK. Dr Leverton, and I, I know you uh, are happy to be called Tim. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, you're very welcome. Good evening to you. You have released a picture of a concept vehicle. It certainly looks different. Is it different underneath? Well, it is. It's um, as we, you mentioned in your introduction. We, the Project Vector project mission is really all about looking at the challenges presented by rapid increases in urbanisation and the, the, the disruption in the mobility landscape that is emerging from that. And so we're concerned with looking really at the mobility system as a whole. And this takes us into areas beyond the vehicle, but it also challenges us to design vehicles which are really purpose-built to meet those challenges. And so under, under the skin of our concept car, we have a, a purpose-designed platform, which is the physical and computing base for providing solutions across private and shared mobility applications, as well as uh, the supporting of the digital ecosystem and, and digital services that we will need to provide and integrate to um, and, of course, then increasing automation and uh, autonomous function as, as part of that. 
It's a pod-shaped vehicle with plenty of glass, big sliding doors that look like the entry to a train carriage almost, and the seating inside, is that different, and does that send a message? Yeah, the seating... So, yes, one of the factors that uh, we've designed into the platform is that all of the, the, the main structural requirements for meeting the safety cases, the crash cases, uh, all the propulsion system and, and all of the uh, thermal management, the, the cooling of the, and conditioning of the cabin, but also the cooling of the, the battery and the, and the drive system are all, are all in a flat, end-to-end uh, flat uh, platform. And that, that enables us to reimagine how a vehicle can be configured and to use the full length. This is a four-meter platform, so it's the same length as a, a European Ford Fiesta or a VW Polo. And yet it offers us the chance to utilize and offer space inside, which is equivalent to a much larger vehicle, maybe a five-meter vehicle or a, an SUV. So this is, this is really a transformation in the way the interior space is used. We can imagine as part of that that because we have the stiffness and, and structure in the base, we, we don't need a conventional B-pillar in the uh, side of the car, so we can have a very large aperture to enter and, uh, and exit the vehicle. And the siding doors are really one option. I mean, we have two or three different options of, of how to configure the doors, but because the doors are, are long, we want them to be able to open and, and stay parallel to the side of the vehicle. And it, when we look at the seating inside the vehicle, then the concept car we've shown has got four individual seats. These are movable and, and, and we can, can be rotated so that the front row of the, uh, of the occupants can face the, the, the back row. So we, we actually have shown the car with all the seats facing each other in what we call a social seating configuration, but there are many different options available. See, it's an electric vehicle, and that has local pollution reduction, which is great, but the focus on getting more than one person, like the driver, in the car, that's a significant change in how we may use these types of vehicles? Absolutely. I think you really uh, have made a good point because what we can see is that in the future, it's not only the design of the vehicle which will, will help in the way that we can create zero emission vehicles, for example, but how those vehicles integrate into a, a completely integrated mobility system for a city. Our aim has got to be to reduce the number of vehicles, and this can only be achieved by by sharing vehicles and by, by getting higher occupancy in those vehicles. So this is why we have to consider alongside the, the, the mechanical elements of the vehicle, the, the way that it fits into the planning and, and management of traffic and uh, an occupancy in a city how will people know that there are vehicles moving to the same place that they want how do we get people who want the same destination to come together how do we pick them up and uh, how do we therefore use planned routings and so forth these are all things that uh, we're researching now and uh, we are planning to uh, start a trial the mobility service trial around the warwick university area and, and in the city of coventry uh, here in the UK, exactly to start to design these services and to understand how to make this aspect of the of the mobility system effective. It has totally broadened the range, the perceptions, the inputs that a, a responsible car company is looking to incorporate into their future products. Has that been one of the biggest changes you've seen in the industry in recent years? I think that's absolutely right. We can't look at the, 
the vehicle in isolation any longer, particularly in a city context. And this is taking us into areas which are very new for us. And it's also taking a, a change in terms of who we are orienting to. We, we obviously focus on our customers, but we have viewed those customers the, as owners, as, as owners of our vehicles. And we now have to consider also users who are, who are just using a service and may not be owners of a, a vehicle, but people who want to access a service. So this shift of, an, of focus from ownership to include usership, which can be uh, people who have, don't have a vehicle of their own but want to access your service, or it could be owners of your vehicle who are behaving as if they use us for certain parts of their mobility life. So this is a, a, a big shift in, uh, in the way that we have to consider the effectiveness of the solutions we provide. Dr. Leverton, Tim, Tim, I really appreciate your time. I've taken a lot of it, but I find that that has great input to, I think, a very broad perception, a very understanding of a, adapting to a changing world. We've reported on many things that Jaguar Land Rover have done in this area. I thank you very much for your time. No, thank you very much, David. All the best. And that was Dr. Tim Leverton who is the project leader of the Project Vector Urban Mobility Research Project that Jaguar Land Rover is conducting as part of a very broad range of activities to understand how we are and how we will use transport as part of our community in the future. You're listening to Overdrive. And here we are again. It's Brian Smith to talk some quirky news. Good day, Brian. Good day, David. Did you see the picture that we put up on the Overdrive Facebook, Overdrive City, of the plane, the electric plane? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Now there is something that is using electricity to, I think, look particularly different. It's a long pencil-like nose of a plane with the wings right at the back and sort of three propellers. That's the issue about the, pl the plane, that it's propellers. The point about that is perhaps we do need a new image, that if I want a plane to get me there as absolutely as quickly as possible, this is not the way to go because it's propeller-driven. It might well be able to land and take off in shorter runways. Well, it's, it's interesting. Maybe we could put runways elsewhere more readily than we can for the, to land a 747, but it certainly does look different, doesn't it? It does. It's um, it's quite spacey looking, and, and like aerodynamically, it, it makes me question a few things. But but hey, look, you you if you're riding in it, you're unlikely to have your view obscured by a wing. And look look, I'm I believe electric planes are an absolute certainty. Um, uh, we're heading that way. So why not take the same opportunity to you know use our advances in uh, technology to uh, you know, make them more efficient or more comfortable or go back to those times when it wasn't so much about um, how long it took you, but the experience you had on the way, you know. So those old flying boats, David, where, oh. where it was all about the getting there was, um, you know, kind of like a, a cruise ship. Well, look at the blimp. That's hardly, that's more, you know, gentle elegance. And in fact, actually taking the time to look when you say the wing's not in your way, maybe you won't have the time to look. I also have the problem that Sydney to Melbourne is just a little too short to have a quick cup of coffee and then grab your computer out and do, I would prefer to do an effective three quarters to an hour's work rather than necessarily 
You need a train, David. Uh, well, ah, Brian, I was about to say that. I am seriously looking at times to get a train out. It's 11 hours. If I could be away from everything for 11 hours, I think I'd get about half a year's work done. <laughs> and, of course, if you're going to Melbourne, the time works very well. You got on, on board the train in Sydney and it travels overnight. It gets you there in the morning. So it picks you up from in the city and it takes you to the city, whereas the airport is still, you know, a 40-minute sky bus right away. Mm. Um, and so you can work. It's the other direction that's difficult to make that work, um, difficult to have a train that then leaves at the end of the day and arrives back in Sydney the next morning. For some reason, the schedules don't sort of work in both directions very well. But, David, you're right. You can have a, even a train that's a bit faster that takes five hours or something like that. Uh, would still give you a substantial time, you know, regular, steady travel that you can get stuff done. I think the five hours would be much preferable if we could get fast trains. You don't need very fast trains, but you just need to be able to spend some money that makes trains that we've talked about it in cities or linking cities to regional towns, Sydney to Newcastle. If you could do that in an hour, then the dynamics and the interaction between those two areas would be quite, quite enhanced and certainly perhaps different in many ways. Hmm. I agree. Uh, in fact, sometimes I think that maybe I might just hop on a train and go to Newcastle and take three hours, uh, have a coffee and come home again, merely to be... To get some, get some work done. Get some work done. <laughs> All right, Brian. Now, Brian, do you remember the Segway? We're segwaying now, are we, David? Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember the Segway. It, uh, it changed everything, didn't it? It no. reshaped cities. Oh, oh, that's right, it didn't. I think you're quoting the publicity before it came out. It made it possible for people to look stupid while touring Sydney Olympic Park. You can do it out there, but, you know, it seems to me that's the, the worst of all worlds in getting incidental exercise, to my mind. But it was something that weighed, I think, about 60 kilograms. It was that pogo stick on two wheels, which used a gyroscope and, and things to stay balanced with very clever technology. Well, now they're proposing it at the recent SEC trade event, you know those events that are fast replacing the traditional car shows, motor motor shows, where technology is being shown very strongly and companies are using it to show technology? Well, Segway came out with that idea of using it as a two-wheel seat, a two-wheel wheelchair almost would be the look of it. Do you think there's potential with that? Well, I'm, I'm trying to work out why two wheels is better than three or four, Obviously, it just means you're including some very complicated uh, gyroscope materials in there to get it to stand up. Mm. Um, it doesn't make it any smaller than it would be if it had a third or fourth wheel. In fact, it's got a very small third wheel on the front of it, I guess, for when you are getting in or something. But, but I often ask, what problem are we trying to solve here? And, and it seems to me we're just adding a whole bunch of Dyson-level complexities to a product that already exists and and then try to find a way in which it's improved so it's it's definitely looks comfortable and it looks um stylish but you know it, it, it's just an electric wheelchair but it only has two wheels 
picture of it is on our Overdrive City Facebook page. You should be able to look it up, and we'll try and put one up onto our Overdrive, overdrive no, drivenmedia.com.au. But it is stylish, Brian. It's definitely stylish, though, David. Its style is very like um, the chairs in the movie Wally about the. Uh, the little repair robot in the future where everybody's sitting in one of these things, hurtling along, hugely obese, eating and drinking and communicating with each other electronically on sort of highways, and then vehicles come up alongside to bring them more food and drink. And so it looks very like that. So my immediate thought was, oh, my God, Pixar future is here. So, yeah, yeah, stylish, if you like, a style that makes you immediately feel guilty. Is this a classic example of something that we think would be ideal for people with a disability, but in reality we end up using it for our own lazy self uh, activities? I think of you know, you know autonomous taxis okay. could pick up you know people who had a disability, and because they're autonomous, they don't need a driver, you don't need to pay them, you might well be able to do transport for the disabled much more efficiently. But then the reality is that everyone wants to avoid having to do that dreadful thing of walking 100 metres or so to the <laughs> bus stop. So, so I think you're right. It's like, um, you, you know, maybe people who wouldn't be seen dead driving one of those mobility scooters would... Uh. would plump for one of these because there's always the chance people might think that they're sort of disabled in a nice way, you know, <laughs> rather than, than hideously. But it, when I look at it, it's, it's, a, it's a rickshaw without the person on the back hmm. in, in a lot of ways. So it's just like a rickshaw without the bicycle at the back. And, and then I'm saying, well, there's one job gone. <laughs> <laughs> what are people going to do in the post-coal future, David? All for retraining coal miners to, to ride rickshaws and now Segway have swept that rug out from under me. Can I say, though, the idea of a wheelchair, to my mind, is still an ugly piece of technology. It's like those old uh, leg braces that poor kids had had a polio had to wear, whereas the modern, well, even the, the modern... Uh, prosthetic legs and that now are far more elegant to my mind they've got some space age technology to it but david 10 minutes ago you were just celebrating the utilitarianism of the vw combi van because it's not making compromises about its design for elegance and and i guess now you're saying that a, a utilitarian thing like a wheelchair isn't good enough because it's not stylish enough I think there are areas to do that. For example, you might have old braces for your teeth that were never elegant. Mm -hmm. You know, they looked like what was that great comedian uh, who said, "You may notice I'm wearing a young fella. I'm wearing braces." Or as someone else knows them, the socially things that scar you socially <laughs> and leave you as a, a loner in the corner of a room. There is this notion that it is like using knocked together old technology for these people that have a disadvantage, oh, okay. but that's the best okay. we can do. But here we could have them in something that looks, well, you know, why can't we have the Ferrari of a wheelchair? Hmm. So is this then just for wealthy people with a mobility impairment? Because surely this would be more expensive than a conventional wheelchair. So maybe you're setting 
then some kind of hierarchy of, of users where, you know, look, if you can afford to, the, to you can look much more stylish in, in this. Again, the, I like to, to call this the Dyson effect where, you know, you've, you've, you're still just um, brushing your hair with a brush and, uh, you know, Dyson's created a, a, a very expensive version of this brush. It's like $1,000 now. And <laughs> Did you see... A friend of mine sent around a thing with a great lament to it saying that you can now have a device where you put the tube of toothpaste in so you don't have to squeeze it. It dispenses it. (laughs) Right, so you put your toothbrush underneath it so you don't have the ignominy of having to actually squeeze it. And, And, of course, it's sold as being more hygienic. And and it should be voice controlled. <laughs> Maximum humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> You'd end up like Lucy, uh, you know, Lucille Ball, where she's uh, trying to voice control it, but it'd get out of control and start <laughs> spewing out toothpaste, uh, a little like she did on the conveyor belt full of chocolates. I'm lamenting back to a time. Oh, I love Lucy. Gosh, no one listening will remember that, I imagine. But, David, we also raised in discussing this thing earlier, uh, um, before this show, uh, an interesting point about occupation of the footpath mm. because, um, you know, these things are clearly meant to be used on, on footpaths and uh, I think we were both quite concerned about um, uh, the idea of more sort of electric devices like this um, taking up space on, on footpaths. Absolutely. I think uh, you have expressed great concern quite rightly that the footpath of the future will be a place for competition of a wide variety of transport devices over and above people just walking on their two feet. It's scooters, it's even not passenger transport. It will be delivery of parcels and so on. With Already those are out there, aren't they, David, which are causing consternation in some American streets where uh, delivery robots on the footpath. Now, whenever you see a company promoting these, it'll have a glorious video of a gentleman on a walking stick walking down the street and one of these little esky on wheels will stop, move aside and let him pass. That is a very uncongested environment. What happens if there's a whole pile of people and one of these things is trying to cope and move around them? It it might do it perfectly, but you don't know what it's doing, and so you trip and stumble. And that was Brian Smith, and we were talking more unusual stories about motoring and transport here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dean Oliver, Alan Finlay, Dr Tim Leverton and Paul Just for their great help during this program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.